Oh, hi there. It's been a while since we've talked here on the main show. The last time was before we had a new mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow. Since then, we've had episodes of our special housing podcast, The Overhead, various camping trips, weddings, and just good old-fashioned summer in the city. But before all that, way back in May, I had the privilege of going to the International Transport Forum in Leipzig, Germany. I was able to hear from a number of experts and saw a wide range of perspectives and ideas that may make their way into future episodes. But I wanted to share some of the conversations I was able to have at the forum itself. I was waiting for a quiet moment when the mayor was elected, when things are typically a bit less chaotic, to share these with you. And while Doug Ford's provincial government was just days ago, blasted by the Auditor General over what looks an awful lot like corruption in gifting Greenbelt land to developers, it's about as quiet as it ever gets in Toronto, Ontario. Now that I've jinxed it, let's go to Leipzig for a bit for a few highlights from my trip before the next local crisis drops. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from Olivia Chow's Toronto, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, Spacing's special fire issue is available now wherever fine magazines are sold, so we're bringing you a conversation with contributors Heather Breeze and Conrad Speckert, who wrote about a relatively simple change to the fire code that could make providing housing in Canada a little easier. But first, we have a bit of an audio journal from my trip to the 2023 International Transport Forum. Stand by. Very much. Well, we've had a uh, very good discussion. I'd like to thank the ITF for hosting this session with my uh, fellow ministers. Um, we've all acknowledged that uh, transport is actually one of the biggest areas that we have got to focus on to hit our net zero targets. Um, we've all the International Transport Forum, or ITF, is an annual meeting of experts, academics, professionals, politicians, bureaucrats, innovators, and advocates all with the goal of finding solutions to the many problems modern transit faces today. The forum has 66 member nations and counting, and brings representatives from all over the globe. It has keynote speeches, panel discussions, workshops, and member meetings, with the goal of arriving at policy positions and resolutions for the future of transport. My favorite panel discussion at the forum was one discussing accessibility and transportation. I was able to speak to two of the participants, Heather Thompson and Anne Fry, after the discussion. Heather Thompson is the CEO of the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, and I asked her about the problem of prioritizing high-order public transit for commuter travel over smaller, more local orders of transit like buses, which serve a different kind of ridership. Heather, during the panel, you uh, brought up the notion that different people use transit in different ways and uh, that oftentimes big metro lines are designed for the businessman, typically a man, that is trying to get to and from work at certain peak hours of the day, whereas other, other people, women and caregivers, sometimes a combination of both, make uh, shorter linked trips to the grocery store to take their loved one to health care, that kind of thing. 
in Toronto, we are currently building a, uh, a new subway line to relieve the, the main sort of up uptown, downtown morning commuter line uh, that you spoke about, which is badly needed. But at the same time, because of the pandemic, uh, they've reduced services on, on our bus network. And that seems to me to be exactly the kind of thing that you were talking where you're, you're not taking those different kinds of needs into account, the different kinds of users. Yeah, wow. Uh, that sounds like um, something that's maybe a little bit looking towards travel patterns of the past and not travel patterns of, of the future. You know, I think in that instance, it would be really interesting to actually collect some data on what are the current mobility patterns of people. And as you said, since the pandemic, we see so many shifts. And I think those shifts really haven't even settled out yet for us to truly understand. You know, I think downtown areas around the world are, are suffering because there aren't people going to those more traditional jobs as regularly. The local businesses in those areas are, are suffering, yet we're still planning around those needs. We're still thinking about that daily mail commute as, as the, the priority need for our transportation systems. And it certainly doesn't seem to be true as true since the pandemic, but really it, it, it never was true. Um, you know, on average, it's about 20% of users that are those kind of traditional mail commuters, whereas the 80% of the population is working at different times of the day, has have different needs are are not coming downtown uptown as you said just to take caregivers as an example yeah they're much smaller trips chained trips they're they're taking their kids to school they're maybe caring for elderly folks they're going to the grocery store some in many places around the world you you know you have to pay your bills by going to the actual utility and paying your bills all of these small things throughout the day often you know if you have an elderly person with you you're you're walking with them slowly if you're pushing a stroller maybe with groceries in your hand and a toddler alongside of you you're not moving quickly you're moving very very slowly so it's it's really about thinking about the systems that are designed for those needs and understanding even when we talk about the ability to move from one place to another in a short amount of time what does that mean if, if we talk about a 20-minute commute for somebody that is fully abled, maybe you can get uptown to downtown on a speedy metro in 20 minutes. But if you're a caregiver with a toddler, you may not even be able to walk to the bus stop in 20 minutes. So it, it, it's really, really important to think about that the 80% of the users when we're designing our systems, especially when you think about how expensive a metro system is. You know, metro systems are great because they move so many people, but there are so many more cost-effective means of moving people. And, and you mentioned buses. Buses are one of the most cost-effective ways of, of getting people around. They can be just as fast as a metro system if you build them like a bus rapid transit system, which essentially is like a metro system, but using buses instead of expensive rail systems. And they allow flexibility. You know, you can have a bus route that can change if people's needs change. You can redesign uh, the bus routes, which we see a lot of cities actually redesigning their, their bus networks, which is something that was needed before the pandemic, but certainly now that the pandemic has happened, 
you know, looking at how people's patterns are changing and then rerouting buses to, to serve those. So I hope Toronto will <laughs> reconsider the, the emphasis on metro over buses and, and really give some thought to the resiliency of, of buses and continuing to, to meet people's needs as those needs change. And also, again, serving many more people's needs than, than just that metro, <laughs> metro commuter. Heather Thompson, thank you so much. Thank you. Anne Fry is a transport and mobility consultant with her firm Anne Fry Limited, and she spoke to the tension between trying to modernize transit without inadvertently creating barriers for people with certain disabilities or mobility needs, something we can see play out often in cities, which is currently playing out dramatically at High Park in Toronto. Is it possible to strike a balance? And I enjoyed the uh, conference, and you brought up something that really reminded me about the difficulty in trying to find ways to balance different kinds of mobilities, different kinds of accessibilities, different needs. I remember on Twitter years ago, there was a picture of uh, an orange wrapped in plastic, and and people kind of laughed at it because uh, oranges come in natural uh, package, but uh, accessibility, people in the know said, well, actually, not everyone can peel an orange. It it can be quite difficult depending on your your mobility. What you said in the panel kind of made me think of that, uh, especially in terms of what they're doing often in the UK about limiting cars in in, uh, certain neighborhoods. And so I I was wondering, I I think we all agree that we want to live in a a healthier place and uh, we want to prevent road deaths and that sort of thing, but we also don't want to leave out people that are often already marginalized in, in all kinds of walks of life. So how, how do you balance those priorities and, and keep everything, you know, I, I know that's a difficult question, but... I think what you, what you need to start by doing is, is listening to people and not just talking to the people who are out on the street because by definition they are comfortable with being there. You need to find a way to talk to the, the or listen to the silent voices, the people who've been driven from the streets because they're too frightened to be there because of the conflict with e-scooters or traffic volumes or uh, cyclists or whatever it might be. If you're not hearing those voices, then you don't know what what you've lost. But those people have not just disappeared, they've become a a cost and a burden on health authorities, on welfare, their own health and uh, nutrition will have suffered because they're no longer able to get out and do even the most local things. So it's a huge issue if if we don't find out what are the downsides of policies that come in with the, you know, under the green agenda? There's a very important subset there that needs to say, okay, but who have we lost? And how can we bring them back? How can we make them feel more comfortable? What can we do to make sure that their needs are also met? Do you think there's a, a kind of a, a young sort of hipster vibe to, to some urbanism that often kind of leaves people, uh, especially older people or people with mobility issues, kind of in the cold, even with the best intentions? I think you could well be right. I think there is such an enthusiasm for innovation like the e-bikes, the e-scooters, using apps to plan journeys and so on, that quite often those people who are not on the internet, who don't have a smartphone, who don't feel confident out in the street, just get forgotten. So I think there is a Uh, I don't know whether it's a hipster vibe, but there's definitely a a, a movement there to say, you know, okay, let's go with new technology, let's get on with stuff and forget that there are, and will in every generation be people for whom that's not a solution. You know, if if 
you will be absolutely on top of technology now, but by the time you're 70, you'll probably be saying, oh God, I don't understand this. I don't know how to make this work. You know, where's my grandson? Get him to do it for me. So, you know, every generation is going to have successive problems. They won't be the same problems, but they will always be there because the needs and perspectives of the 20-year-old and the 70- or 80-year-old are so very different. You spoke a lot about the, the need to have people of different uh, abilities, you know, kind of in the design phase before decisions are already made. You know, public consultation has changed a lot, especially during the pandemic. I guess what I'm asking is, how do you know who hasn't been included if you're not even aware of those communities? Well, the way that public consultation mostly changed during the pandemic was to go online. So there you have the answer. You've excluded all those who can't respond online. You need to go back to the, you know, the old-fashioned pre-tech days of uh, meetings in local areas, making sure there are posters up around local shops, you know, using, using healthcare and welfare networks to reach out to people. Certainly, I mean, in the UK, for example, there's a talking newspaper for blind people, which is on a voluntary basis in a local area. So people read out all the stuff from local press in your town or village. That's the way to reach out to people. In addition, nothing wrong with online responses, but you need to remember there's a whole subsection there, and not necessarily just older people, quite a lot of people with low vision. People using screen readers find that the online technology is not accessible to them. So just back off the online as the answer to your prayers, I would say. And Fry, thank you so much for your time. Okay, it's a pleasure. The guiding theme of this year's forum was reducing the climate impact of transport to help meet the global Paris Agreement targets. But pollution is only one aspect plaguing transport at the moment, and switching to things like electric vehicles won't solve everything. So, I ended my trip by asking ITF General Secretary Young Tae Kim if we can take a holistic approach to rethinking transportation in our cities. You began uh, by saying that sustainable transportation is more than just green and clean. You said it was about access. A lot of the talk in this conference has been about uh, electric vehicles to tackle the climate portion of transportation and meeting the, the Paris agreements. But I wonder, at the same time, do we have to try and tackle the congestion problem that won't be solved by, by switching fuel modes? Is it possible to try and tackle these two problems at the same time? I think so, because we should not give up our optimism. And if we are pessimistic, basically, we cannot move forward. So um, ITF, I, I think you, you saw the launching of a new Outlook uh, 2023. and that contains uh, three scenarios. So um, based on the analytic, uh, the work that we did, and we provided uh, the global community with three uh, options, kind of options. So if we maintain the status quo, and we can reach this level. If we do a little bit more, that level, maximum, that level, it, it can change, of course, considering uh, all the different factors that might come in the future. But I think definitely congestion question and sustainability and also even uh, you know, the connectivity issue, supply chain. I think now we, we, we try to take into account all the factors as much as, as we can because without uh, having a holistic approach, we cannot really solve the problem. But solution can uh, come from this society and this society with a little bit of different intervals. So 
based on what they have currently. So they can uh, use their policy measures like this and that. And that, that's why uh, in ITF it's very important to have a different view from different countries. We are a platform, we are not a regulator. Sometimes we provide our inputs uh, based on evidence to uh, decision makers like the European Commission and ICAO and IMO. But uh, basically um, we, we try to handle uh, all the different questions together. Thanks very much. And that was your dispatch from Leipzig, Germany. Now, Heather Breeze and Conrad Speckert wrote a piece in the recent Fire issue of the magazine called The Single Stair Solution. In it, they argue for a change to the National Building Code of Canada, which would make certain housing typologies easier to build while still maintaining essential fire safety. To get into your story, the the single stair solution, uh, as you call it, uh, I think we have to begin by just explaining the National Building Code of Canada, what that is and, and how it kind of trickles down into uh, the types of buildings that we, we're actually able to have in the City of Toronto and other Canadian municipalities. The National Building Code is a model building code, same as in the, similar as in the U.S. Uh, here, each province has its own building code, but given similarities in how we build and It'd be quite confusing if a window manufacturer in Quebec couldn't sell their windows in Ontario. The provinces harmonize, and so there's a model code that the, the provinces tend to harmonize to, and it's developed on a five-year cycle. And so more and more recently, the provinces have standardized, and rather than, for instance, trying to, to specifically focus on changing codes, provincially, uh, they work together at the national level. And that code gets released every five years, and then the provinces harmonize to it. And so most recently, we saw changes on things like mass timber. And I think in the next five, ten years, we'll see a lot of things around energy efficiency and body carbon. Um, yeah. Right. And uh, another thing uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, but uh, we, we should briefly explain, is uh, the missing middle and, and the need for kind of... Uh, Mid-size uh, multi-unit uh, residential spaces in, in cities, uh, that kind of gentle density that uh, people may have heard about. Uh, so, so what is that and, and why is it difficult uh, to build in, in cities in Canada because of the, the National Building Code? So I think if I can jump in, I think the missing middle, it kind of has to do with two things. So it is definitely affected by code, but especially in cities like Toronto, it's more so affected by the zoning policies. So we only have small portions of all of Toronto where you are permitted to build a higher density than something that's the size of a single family dwelling. Right now, I believe over 70% of our city, according to the official plan, is zoned as neighborhoods. And so that's a really popular topic of conversation right now because neighborhoods, only semi and detached houses can be permitted in certain areas. In a lot of areas, it's only detached houses. So then that's why in downtown pockets, 
you get really tall condo buildings because it's kind of going from one extreme to the other. And so when we talk about missing middle, we're really talking about how can we amend or adjust those policies to allow for kind of middle density. So things that are mid-rise, six stories to be allowed to be built where right now only, you know, two-story houses are being built. Yeah, and I'll add to that. I mean, the city city just passed the permission for multiplexes in those neighborhoods. And when you start to look at what the architecture of those buildings might be, how they might be arranged and laid out, it's going to end up mostly, I think, right now as, as arrangements which are called stacked townhouses. And so stacked townhouses means that each, each unit has its own front door, its own staircase, uh, which sounds great from a privacy perspective, but you start to end up with a building that's got tons of, you know, you might have four units and eight staircases in that building because you're stacking them and arranging them like Rubik's cubes vertically on top of each other. If you go to Montreal and you look at the way that Montreal has been doing multiplexes for more than 100 years, 200 years, they've got a history of doing them uh, very differently where the units share the staircases, the units, you know, occupy an entire floor level. And so the the way that it's arranged is actually much more accessible and I think just much more livable. But so that's, you know, that's, that's changing these neighborhoods and with what we're talking about building code reform will really support making those types of housing more livable. Right. But uh, in terms of the fire code, as I understand it, the a single staircase multi-unit residence can only be about uh, two stories because for well-meaning reasons, right? you, you want everyone to be able to flee the building uh, as quickly as they can uh, in case of an emergency. But uh, as I understand that, that's very restrictive and uh, it uh, leads people to... Uh, sort of leaning towards what you call a double-loaded corridor, where uh, it's almost like a, a hotel uh, in design, where you have a, you know one long hallway, and then you have to have two staircases on either side. The staircases are taking up a lot of space that could be devoted to extra bedrooms, uh, which reduces like the density uh, of each unit. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. That's like uh, layers and layers and layers of assumptions. But I think the, the first thing maybe is there's this idea in Canada that yeah, any building with more than two, two, two stories needs two staircases. But that's actually a pretty uniquely Canadian assumption. Uh, so part of the work that that I've been doing before Heather and I wrote this article and, and uh, part of um, building support to change the code was looking at what other countries around the world allow. And through that, realized that Canada is this, I originally thought it was the most restrictive country, but then someone sent me the building code of Uganda. Canada is the second most restrictive jurisdiction in the world, requiring two exits for any building of more than two stories. Uh, the US is less restrictive, All pretty much, I mean, all of mainland Europe and of Asia, Pretty much every country that has a building code available digitally that can be assessed has less restrictive permissions, i.e. allowing you to build a, a taller height. And so then you can, you can ask, okay, well, why is that? What are the assumptions uh, historically and in the way that we build or the way that our firefighters practice uh, that has led to that? And there's, there's a lot there to unpack. 
Um, but I think, yeah, because the Canadian code has that assumption in it, uh, which is something that's been in it since the very beginning, the first code from 1941, uh, it leads to us typically doing apartment buildings and multi-unit buildings the same way as we do hotels or dormitories, which makes them, you know, frankly, less appealing, uh, especially for families. And from the double loaded corridor side, that's that's why that shape is so popular because there's minimums and maximum distances between those two staircases themselves and from each unit to the staircases exits. And so the most efficient floor plan for developers becomes then a very small amount of space on the hallways, as small as they can do in between those two corridors with all of the units coming up, you know, out of them you've always seen, and as, as Conrad said, hotels and dormitories, as well as apartment buildings. So it's just a model that has been proven to work in terms of kind of developer efficiency and has just been replicated over and over, but it kind of results in a not so nice space in between those corridors that you just want to exit as quickly as possible. Right. And so you've proposed something uh, as an alternative uh, in the article. Uh, we'll call it the single stair solution. So so what, what is the proposal uh, as an alternative to this, the, the current fire code? Last year, I worked with a fire protection engineer for quite some time and met with, by now it's probably been over a thousand people in the construction industry and architects, planners, builders, uh, even some, some fire chiefs people both in Canada and in other jurisdictions to, to, to have discussions, to discuss how the code works in their, in their world, their perceptions. And what we put together was a proposal which, um, you know, when, when you hear single stair, the immediate assumption might be, well, that's just talking about removing the staircase. But being very clear, the code change request is adding on a whole bunch of conditions and constraints additional fire protection measures that otherwise wouldn't be required, which we very clearly, and in meetings with you know, experts in fire protection industry, they agree with us, beyond a doubt, provide equivalent or better fire protection and fire safety outcomes than the conventional code. And the reason for that is, you know, if you look at a stacked townhouse, uh, if you look at a typical double-loaded corridor building that might be 40, you know, the, the distance between the two stairs can be up to 40 meters. It's got, you know, more than a dozen units sharing that corridor. And you compare that to the limits that we've put. So the limits, for instance, say you can't have more than four units per floor. Again, this is the, the building code technical stuff that I'll nerd out on here for a second. But in part nine of the code right now, it's buildings are not to have an automatic fire sprinkler system. If you wanted to do it as a single stair, uh, you would. And the, the fire safety statistics that exist and, and the fact of the matter is that when a building is sprinkler, the, the fire performance and, and uh, risk profile of that building is, is, is much, much better. Quite frankly, smoke alarms and fire, uh, fire sprinklers are two of the best mitigating measures uh, one can provide. But that was all based off of really um, a wide survey of, of what people are doing in other jurisdictions, of what would be appropriate given that we build with wood frame construction in Canada. But one of the, the really interesting things that I think we, uh, we really champion is the way in which doors uh, are built. Um, so in, in Canada, when you do 
uh, we do a dwelling unit into a corridor, and from the corridor, there's another door into the stair. Um, the code specifies the, the performance that that door has to have, i.e., uh, how long, in terms of a number of minutes, should that door be able to withstand fire going from one side into the other. And the, the required rating in Canada is actually really low. The wall between your dwelling unit, your, 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 where you live, and the corridor has to have a rating of an hour. But the door in that wall only has to be rated to 20 minutes. In other jurisdictions, the requirement says that the door must perform like the wall that it's in. And so we thought, you know, if you're, if you're compromising the performance of the wall by putting a bad door in, why not protect the exits better by requiring the door to perform like the wall? And so one of the key things that we inserted, which you actually don't see any codes in the U.S., for instance, um, is that there's additional fire protection rating requirements for doors. But there's all, there's all this technical language that I think in the article we tried to be a bit light on, knowing it's a broader audience. But I think the key thing here is that there's, there's modern ways of doing things that other countries have figured out, but our code is still based off of the assumptions we had uh, in 1941 when it was first published. And then on the design side of things, all of the, the measures that Conrad just talked about are things that are implemented into existing elements of the design. But the big key to this is that you're removing the space that otherwise would be occupied by the single stair or by the second stair. And you're giving that space back to habitable space. So on every level, all of that extra room now can go back into apartments and other units. And so not only is that good because we're increasing the, the sort of space that's available for housing stock, but often on these small lots where we talk about the missing middle, that amount of space can be the make or break between a feasible and a not feasible project for a developer. And so, yes, we're adding cost with the measures that Conrad just explained, but we're also removing the cost of building that second stair, which because it needs to be non-combustible construction, which is concrete, it is quite expensive. So that is something that um, it can be further explored in, in this alternate solution, the actual kind of dollar dollar breakdown. But it's undeniable that when you have that extra rental space, that definitely helps the bottom line of the developer and thus makes these projects more feasible and able to be taken on at this kind of middle scale, whereas before it wasn't or it, or it might not be in a lot of cases. And that's why there kind of is this push to or this much more popular um, large condo buildings versus very small kind of detached homes. But that extra space being given back is really the crucial part of this alternative solution, in addition to these more targeted and more inline code measures. So with this new proposal, I understand, uh, as you said, Conrad, uh, they take a look at the building code every five years. So the, the earliest it could be adopted would be 2025. Who, who is on board with it so far? Because I understand this, this idea has gotten some traction. Yeah, so the code change request, we submitted it nationally. They've got uh, lots of priorities for what they have to tackle for this upcoming code cycle. They're, they're discussing working on it for the next code cycle, so for 2030 at the national level, which, which is fantastic. And building codes move, move very slowly. So 2030 might you know, sound like it's far away, but in fact, that's an appropriate timeline given the significance of, of this change and what we're discussing. And I think it's a good signal as well to municipalities there's a few cities in Canada which are chartered cities, 
Surprisingly, Toronto is not a chartered city. Montreal is a chartered city. Vancouver is a chartered city. And what the charter means is that the, that the municipality can actually write bylaws that contravene provincial or federal uh, regulations. And so, for instance, Vancouver and Montreal have their own building code. Uh, Toronto, if it wanted to go ahead with a certain change, uh, cannot um, because Toronto is not a chartered city, whereas Vancouver and Montreal can. And so, there's the distinctions of, of seeing certain municipalities perhaps take this on more in advance. Vancouver, just this last week, I think, has, has dropped their draft zoning bylaw amendment for multiplexes. And so this is something that would align very closely with you know, the intent of, of those changes. Um, and I think any, any municipality that's looking at main streets rezoning, you know, allowing and encouraging buildings of four to six stories, small apartment buildings, uh, this is something that uh, aligns with them. Uh, I mean, just two weeks ago, I was invited by a city councillor in Edmonton to give a presentation to their chief building official. Fire chiefs were in the room, architects, developers. It was actually quite amazing to see Edmonton get all these people together in one room. And I then gave a presentation to them and spoke for an hour about you know, safety, the benefits, the zoning-related context for it and everyone in the room seemed to really understand why this is a good idea also recognizing that there's lots of research that still needs to be done and i know that research is is going to happen but i think there's there's momentum building um, people are understanding you know anytime anyone visits seattle or you know flies to flies to europe and, and, and stays in, in an apartment building over there you just you immediately grasp uh, the benefits in terms of you know, the amount of daylight you get in your unit, the, the, the fact that you're able to open windows on both sides and get a breeze blowing through. There's a whole bunch of nuances and benefits to this that I think people are, are starting to pick up on the more and more discussed. I think even in Toronto, council and, and city planners are starting to pick up on this. There was a project that the firm that I work at, Double Dam Architecture and Design, was involved in. And it was for the expanding housing options in neighborhoods. They're doing a pilot project for the missing middle called the Beaches East York Pilot Project. And the scheme that our office produced is an exploration of a single story solution, or sorry, a single stair solution uh, at a four story level. And that was something that we wanted to explore as part of that project. And, and the, the planners that were involved in that project also were really interested in sort of beginning a study of the feasibility of that. And what those plans and drawings look like is, is publicly available on the city's website, if anyone's interested in kind of seeing an alternative. But again, it's it's for the scale of something that is already in a residential condition. So this project is on a basic, typical Toronto residential lot, and you can just immediately see how much more space is available with this single stair solution. So it is something that is definitely popular amongst designers, but it's, it's really starting to gain traction amongst um, city officials as well. I've wondered for a long time, uh, a while back, I, I wrote about the Great Fire in Toronto in 1904. And the kind of immediate aftermath of that was that uh, the city didn't want buildings built higher than uh, basically their hoses could reach at the time with the the pressure technology and the the ladders and that kind of thing. I know building typologies uh, depend on a lot of different things. Like, like you said, zoning laws, uh, probably the materials that are available at the time or that are affordable at the time. But uh, 
To what extent does uh, the fire code at, at any level of government uh, really shape a city throughout the years? Of, like, can you walk from uh, one neighborhood to another and say, "Oh, that the reason for this change is uh, they they <laughs> adapted the fire code." I think the 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 way in which cities are designed based on fire is is it, but not just in Canada; it's everywhere. Incredibly tied to that, whether it's the use of masonry being required. Uh, in the early 1900s in different cities, uh, this, the way that we plan streets and lay out, you know, turning radiuses for the size of trucks. And so there's a whole dependency, you know, in, in different countries, the size of the fire trucks that they buy compared to the way that streets are designed. There's a U of T professor that did a really interesting study when he calls them, he calls it wicked problems, which is, of course, these issues when there's, let's say, different departments in a municipal bureaucracy disagree on, on what their priorities are. And so for instance, if you're if you're having a discussion around installing bike lanes or slowing down traffic on a road in Toronto, you might get into conflicting priorities between uh, one side of the municipality sees this as you know improving safety of the street, climate mitigation measures, etc. And um, another side of the, the municipality might say, well no, this is reducing response times of our emergency responders. And then you've got kind of a, a conflict between these two conflicting interests. And in many ways, that's a similar wicked problem to I think the discussion of, of single stayer, uh, except for the fact that the mitigating measures that are being proposed as part of this proposal are you know, generally agreed upon and provide superior safety performance as well. And so I think we've really, because we went into this listening and having a lot of discussions, uh, what we've come up with is a really healthy balance. And it, not even just a balance, but actually exceeds the safety performance of the typical building with two stairs. And I think we're really continuing to see how new ideas of how to build the city and how to shape the city are, are really still following fire code, of course, still wanting to work with whatever makes for the most safe condition. We very recently in the city passed the Garden Suite bylaw, which allows for the building of garden suites in homes without lanes. And then of course we have the laneway bylaw uh, several years past. And both of those conditions have very specific uh, adherences that must be met to the fire code. And so it's been this really sort of interesting symbiotic relationship to allow for the building that the city needs and allow for more uh, involvement and, and methods of building while also still being able to adhere to proper fire codes. And so the, the evolution of kind of both of those things together is really what this this alternative solution is also sort of relying on and taking advantage of. Well, uh, Heather Conrad, uh, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I, I want to ask you a quick question. Oh, um, yeah, sure. Uh, how many staircases do you think the CN Tower has? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess one. Yeah. <laughs> that's, hey, that's a good point. Great trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. Well, yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank you both for, for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your local firehouse and transit nerds all over the world. If you have a moment, share it around. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us reach new listeners. 
I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all one word. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, where you can pick up the fire issue of the magazine. In the meaning, go camping. Cheers. Cheers.